Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching with TBA rabbinic intern Rachel Cohn. This evening we're going to look at a text, a piece of the Parsha that I find challenging. Perhaps other people will find challenging too, at least from um, looking at it from my eyes as a modern feminist and and otherwise progressive-minded person. Um, so um, I invite you into this conversation tonight not to um, be looking to necessarily uh, whitewash or otherwise like paint a perfectly a, a picture with a perfectly tied bow on it of these texts but the the particular perspective I've taken on it that you'll see as I go through the different sources is to kind of look at the evolution of thinking about some of these topics of representations of disabilities over time to kind of illustrate how we're part of an ongoing conversation in Jewish life so I invite you into that into that many generational ongoing conversation tonight um, one other technical note, if you did print out the source sheet, there's one um, instance of God's name that I missed in changing it to a Yud Yud. Uh, so I apologize that if you printed it out, that means that you should find a way to get it to a Geniza if you are no longer in need of it. I see a raised hand already. Um, uh, I'm not a member, though I've now been coming, so I didn't get the source sheet. If it's Safaria, could you put it in the chat? Oh, there is no chat. The chat is disabled. Um, I will do my best to point out um, at least one of them is. In, do you have like a, a humash or other way? To oh, I have a ton. I have a ton. Yes. Okay. So the biblical text to at least see where we're jumping off. I'll be able to tell you where it goes from there, and then the rest will read out loud, and hopefully you'll be able to to follow along. All right. So um, we'll begin in Leviticus chapter twenty-one verse 16, and um, I will read part of this out loud um, just to kind of give a summary of some of these. There's a, eventually a list of many different bodily conditions that I'll, I'll kind of skim over myself. So God spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and say, no man of your offspring throughout the generations who has a moom, the word in Hebrew is moom, translated can be um, a, a defect or other, um, any, any like imperfection, basically, shall be, um, none of them shall be qualified to offer the food of his God. In other words, uh, sacrifice. At that time, the food of God was considered the, the sacrificial system. No one at all who has a defect shall be qualified to draw near. No man who is blind or lame or has a limb too short or too long, man who has a broken leg or a broken arm, who has a hunchback or dwarf, a growth in his eye, a boil scar, or a scab with eruptions or crushed testicles. No man among the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a defect, shall be qualified to offer God's offering by fire. Having a defect, he shall not be qualified to offer the food of his God. He may eat of the food of his God, meaning the, the priests needed to eat some of the sacrificial offerings in order to have sustenance. So what this is saying is priests with any of these conditions, they were allowed to still eat the food designated for priests. However, and if you look at, um, we're now at the end of the section we're looking at, chapter 16, verse 23, um, or 22 and 23, he may eat of the food of his God, 
of the most holy as well as the holy, but he shall not enter behind the curtain or come near the altar, for he has a defect. So this section, it summarizes um, that, you know, priests who, who knows how many people would have fallen under those categories at that time, but a whole whole long list of conditions that would designate a priest as um, not able to offer sacrifices for the other community members. So before we delve into uh, some of our emotional reactions to reading this, let's try to understand for a moment why, what are your thoughts on why this set of conditions might have been included here? Like what? Yeah. Um, go, go for it. Um, the issue with it that they're showing is that these are all defects that occurred after birth. These are not, because clearly the person was, became a priest already. These are not, these are not defects that, that, uh, that came from birth. These are all defects that after a, after the birth, these are all, these are after the fact situations, which is even, you know, even, even stranger. Even more, you're, you're saying to you, that's, that's more, more offensive or more harder to reconcile. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, green family. I think you're on mute. Hi. Yes. Hi. Um, I think that, uh, some of them are defects that would be permanent and might have been from birth, even while, while others would be obviously, hopefully temporary. Right. But I think that um, I wonder what would have been the expectations of the populace at the time that they received these laws, because if all the other nations, including particularly Egypt, where they had just come from, had rules similar to this or perhaps harsher or less harsh, as the case may be, this might be... Um, similar to that and something that they would expect um, if they really thought of the priest as an intermediary between them and God, then they might have felt like it's important for the priest to have a certain kind of appearance um, that we hopefully would feel less important now. Right. So you're raising the important point of what were the expectations of the time and how did it compare to other local cultures and, and, perhaps most relevant, the most recent culture they had experienced, which was that of Egypt. And um, to which I will answer, I do, I do not know enough of the details about the other local cultures to answer with specifics, except to say that we do know their expectations regarding these, the sacrifices themselves, because they have many other laws at this point about <clears throat> what is expected of the animal that they are offering. So there is some thought that in the way that you keep hearing, you know, an unblemished animal is what you're supposed to bring. An animal can't have this or that or the other in terms of out, outer or inner defects. And so there's some thought, like if there's this understanding in Leviticus of kind of a, a perfect reality and that the priest as the intermediary is supposed to be interacting with a, per, I'm using perfect in air quotes here, um, perfect animal and as a like perfectly visible person to God. But I think you're right. Our understanding now is that, you know, that's, that's not our understanding of the system of communication with God altogether. So yes. And okay. I'll I, leave it. I'll leave it there for now and get some other. I, I just was, I know that with respect to Truma, a lot of the rules are very much similar to what was found elsewhere. Um, but, and so that's why I thought perhaps with respect to the priesthood, it might be similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting. Thank you. Um, okay. A couple other hands. Um, is it t- table or Tybal? It's Tybal, the Yiddish, the Yiddish name, though you may be too young to know Yiddish. Um, 
I thought that you had said something about modern sensibilities or modern leadership, something in the intro, or maybe I didn't hear it, but where that just made me went, I'm sorry, made me go is if we look at modern culture and what is celebrated either with people with talent of some kind, people without talent and celebrity, celebrity or certainly professional sports in terms of who's rewarded both in terms of, I mean, professional sports figures and actors get to testify to Congress. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a certain level of gravitas in addition to income. So if we look at our own culture, maybe there might be some more understanding because this at least had to do with sanctification and God. Mm. So you're saying that we're maybe not rid ourselves of as many of these kind of preferences as we might think. And I'd say worse because I mean, it's not even for as holy a, a purpose. Let's, let's and say. if you want to go the feminists, well, certainly female professional athletes don't who, who gets the adulation and the money and all those things. It's not certainly not as broad in terms of sports and how many. So I don't know if you meant to go there, but we, that's what I mean, so totally hold on to that. I think we'll, we'll maybe circle back to some of those thoughts at the, at the end. Um, we'll, we'll kind of see over time how things might have shifted in between biblical and our now perspective. So, th so thank you for bringing all of that and, and keep it, keep it uh, in your back pocket. Uh, Marcy and then Marshall. Thank you. So what I'm thinking when I look through this list are if I were near somebody who was carrying with them one of these challenges of blind or even shorter than me, you know, if they're a dwarf or something, I think that I would want to help them. And so I'm wondering if by the Kahal, assuming kindness and assuming, you know, I can reach that or I can see with both of my eyes. So let me help you. It may be distracting for the congregation. It may impede our ability to daven or take, you know, it may just distract us from our kavod in a way because we have a higher purpose of wanting to help them with whatever. I don't know how I would help somebody with crushed testicles necessarily, but. Um, or how that one would be as a parent necessarily, but, um, but right. So really good point. And the point about distraction also let's, let's keep that in our minds because I think that's going to be a common thread as we look at how the, the rabbis of the Talmud examine situations like this also. So, right, they're considering like, this person needs to function as a leader. What is necessary in the dynamic between them and the people they are supposed to be leading in order for that person to be able to carry out their their function as a leader? Great. Marshall. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of the the well-known saying, do not look at the outside of the container, but look at what's within. Mm -hmm. So we're not really talking about the personal moral qualities of, of this individual, but only looking at his, his a visible um, defect or a, a visible deformity. But it seems to me it's interesting that it doesn't talk about a cheresh here, one who is uh, is mute, because right. that's not real. That's not really visible. All it, these other cat things are talking about here seem to be visible things. So do the rabbis go ahead and extend this issue of harishut, of deafness, or muteness, to, um, to disqualifying uh, category, category? 
Um, so I was curious about this too, and I'm not 100% certain from the shot, but I do know in general that a cherish isn't considered capable of giving testimony um, because people didn't know what they were understanding or not at the time. Um, so, I mean, I, even though they're not on the list, I kind of imagine that, like, they, that they also would have been disqualified if, they, if people didn't know what they could observe and then reflect back. But um, it's an interesting question. And my last source on the sheet kind of in includes understanding of Kheresh as, as if it might have been included in that list. So, so it's interesting you bring that up. Um, so, okay, so, we, so we've summarized the many reasons it could have been possible that this, this person was initially in biblical times excluded from leadership in this way. I think like it may bother many of us, it has bothered rabbis for a long time, I think. And in part because some of the commentaries and midrash that speak about this try to make at least an initial um, initial like lessening of the degree of exclusion in how they think about it. So if, is there someone with the source sheet who can read the, the Rashi on 2121? Larry, go ahead. So, Mumbo, he has a blemish. These apparently redundant words imply, so long as he has the bodily blemish, he is unfit for priestly service. Consequently, if his blemish disappears, he is fit for priestly service. And the word that's used there is kasher. Yep, like he's kosher, he's approved. Right. It doesn't even say it's a, it doesn't even say he is kosher. It simply says kosher. Right, right. And again, it's similar language to thinking about the an, you know animals. So that there does seem to be this parallel between like how the priest is supposed to be in if we deem um, an animal or food that we're eating kosher, kosher not kosher. Um, so I think Rashi's pointing out, and he's quoting the Midrash in, in Sifra here. It, so some people had raised, are these permanent or temporary things? Rashi alleviates a little bit of the what we might see as problematic today by saying some of them are temporary. And as long as the, you know, when the condition is removed, then it's okay. He's fit for service again. And if if we, you know, if we go with that understanding, it might even seem like we're doing somebody a favor by giving them medical leave or something like that. If they do have a temporary condition that makes it harder for them to work. So I don't know. Do people think, does Rashi make you feel any better about reading this? Agree, disagree, thoughts in general about Rashi here? Joanna? Not exactly to your question, but um, I'm curious about Rashi and his use of the terms pasul and kasher, mm -hmm. because um, we have two very good terms um, that are often mistranslated, but really mean fit for temple service or not. Right. Um, you know, tamay and tahor. So our... Pasul and Kasher direct maps onto those terms, Tamei and Tahor, or by Rashi using Pasul and Kasher, is he trying to get at something different? Um, I mean, it's an interesting question because the Tamei and Tahor is, it can be kind of like, it, it, it's also a status thing. Like, is this individual item or person experiencing ritual purity or impurity? But it, 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 there's, there's an element to like kasher or pasul that 
that at least in my mind has more to do with like, so then can you use it for something? It, it's kind of like a, almost a, a stronger term. And if you're trying to describe like, can this person or this thing perform a, a function instead, it's instead of just describing like what it is or it isn't, it's like, okay. And therefore can I use it? Can it go forward and do this thing? I mean, I think like, I I don't know. It's an interesting question. And um, I don't know if I can speak to his exact choice here, but it does seem, it it does seem like stronger to me to say that like the valid or invalid um, pasul kasher. And I think it, it does map more neatly onto the, the animals. So if we're trying to get into the mindset of Leviticus is thinking about like, is this animal kasher? Because like, we don't always talk about if the animal is, Tameh or Tahor. We, we often talk about like these animals are kasher or not kasher. So in thinking about bodies, I mean, there's lots of ways that we talk about bodies as pure and impure too. So it's, it's kind of, it's like, it's a good question and a bit murky territory. Um, so if, yeah, if Cantor Chorney has any particular linguistic expertise there that you want to add, um, I would, I would welcome it. You know, we're uh, rabbi, other rabbi Torney and I are sitting here debating as well. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're like thinking, thinking about this as well. I think you're on to something having to do with the Levitical language about, about the caution of animals. It's a very, very interesting uh, mapping of language. And Joanna, you're a very close reader. That's a great point. Totally. To, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm going to be like, you know, like thinking yeah. about that as I like, you know, try to yeah. go to sleep. <laughs> and I'm, um, I'm most interested in one of the things that, that Dana was bringing up in the background, other Rabbi Chorney, is whether or not what, what's interesting is that um, you cannot reverse, you know, if, if an animal has a moom, it cannot uh, ever, if even if it recovers from that, it cannot ever be brought for for sacrifice. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case here. So there really there really is a different here. There There, there is a di- at least one difference. And I'm guessing a lot more. Um, but now you're just opening worlds. Both right. Doing right. That yeah. Okay, great. We're going to move on for the moment and keep keep ruminating on that. Um, Norm and then Marshall, and then we got to go to another source. I think that since it specifically says that even the priest with the blemish is permitted to eat truma, that mm-hmm. chances are it is a lesser problem than being tame, because if you were tame, I think you might not be permitted to do that. So you could be tahor even though you have a blemish, and therefore cannot officiate with the sacrifice, you still get to eat the truma. And I also want to give credit to earlier rabbis, because Rashi apparently gets this from the Sifra, which is, you know, maybe a thousand years before him. Um, it's the halachic midrash on, on Bayekra, on, on Leviticus. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Uh, Marshall? And I'm just wondering if the translation here of fit and unfit is, gives us a good picture I'm wondering if maybe pasul means appropriate for, or, or, or say pasul might mean inappropriate, mm-hmm. and maybe kasher means appropriate for, or maybe pasul means unqualified, and kasher means qualified for. I think those are all excellent alternative translations because I think, and and to speak a bit to Norm's point also, I think they're trying to distinguish between it's not that this person is an evil person or that there's something inherently wrong with them it seems that they're what they're continually getting at is like can this person function as as a, an officiant in this role is there something that disqualifies them from being an officiant in this role either temporarily or on an ongoing way so i want to then look at 
um, a Talmudic view of a, a slightly different situation, but essentially the same issue where they're looking at um, a priest with different blemishes. Can they, the idea of, can they give the, like raise their hands to do the priestly blessing or not? Um, and I'll read through it to summarize it a little bit since um, the, time, the time is always going faster than uh, when you're having fun. You're studying Torah. Okay, so the Mishnah teaches, we're on the, the Megillah 24B source on the source sheet. If you have it, and not, if not, you can listen and enjoy the Talmudic vibes. So the Mishnah teaches, a priest who has blemishes on his hands should not raise his hands for the priestly blessing. And then it quotes another source of Brita that as running eyes also shouldn't be um, in front of the community doing the priestly blessing. But the caveat here is if the person is a familiar figure in his town, he's permitted to do so. So we go on, we hear a couple other things. Again, familiar figure in his town permitted to do so. And then we have another view from Rabbi Yehuda who said one whose hands are dyed blue, which would happen if you are in the profession of dyeing fabric, um, should not lift his hands to recite the priestly blessing. And there's a Brita that adds, if most people in the town are also engaged in that same work, he is permitted to recite the priestly blessing. So to go back to um, an earlier point that I think Marcy brought up about, is this distracting to the people who are in the community? It seems that the trend in the Talmudic piece is really that we're trying to avoid distracting people. And we can tell that because the two exceptions are if this person is familiar in their town, presumably people are no longer distracted by the difference in their physical appearance. Or if other people are also engaged in that profession, then this person can also recite the blessing. This sounds technical on the one hand in the Talmudic piece, but I think this is such a fascinating and realistic and really um, think if we think about it in the most expansive way, very humanizing view of how we can expand leadership. Because the idea that if somebody is a familiar figure in their town, then it's in my view on us as the Kahal to make sure that people are all familiar in their town enough, the regulars, you know, if you have a visitor, that's a different situation, but like that you should make it's, it's on us. It's not on the person who might have a difference in their physical appearance. It's on the rest of us to make that, to be all be well known enough to each other that any of us could stand up and offer a blessing in leadership that that be, that is welcome in the community. And also if we think about if everybody is engaged in this work, if the majority of the people are engaged in this work, then, you know, this, the piece, the rabbis who wrote this may have meant that in a very technical sense of the people have the same profession. But if we think about like, then let's all make it our work to under, like to have empathy, to understand what it's like to have hands that might look different, to have some other physical appearance that might look different. So like, if we consider it all our spiritual work to be able to understand each other enough that we feel that our same, you know, profession is being human, then we can all have enough understanding that people won't feel so singled out that that person is distracting to the community. Like I see this more of an indication of the health of the community overall than any individual person. If we look at it through this, um, through this lens. So I'm going to go to the last source I have, and then we'll, I'll open it up for a couple more comments at the end before we wrap up. So I wanted to in, in kind of the continuation of going from, 
how things were seen in biblical times to how the rabbis of the Talmud viewed a situation like this. I then wanted to look at some language from a, a 2011 teshuva of the, of the conservative law committee about the evolving understanding of the cheresh, the term used for um, a deaf or mute person in the Torah, and the use of sign language as a language to contribute. So as, as Marshall pointed out, cheresh isn't mentioned directly in this section, but I'm using this as an example to show how our thinking about exclusion based on differences in the Torah has evolved through halachic discourse over time. So the, the main um, sentence I wanted to point out is the first one I included that says, a deaf person may serve as shaliach tzibor, may serve as a prayer leader in sign language and a minion whose medium of communication is sign language. So if we look, if we compare that to, you know, if, if most people in the town are engaged in this work, like that, what it's kind of still saying is in a community that understands sign language as a language, if the majority of the people understand that, then that person can use that as a, a medium of communication in their prayer leadership. Um, so I don't think that we're at a point where things are perfect and that our, um, our leadership reflects the diversity of the Jewish people. But I do think it's interesting that if we go from the first sentence I bolded on this sheet, Leviticus 21, verse 17, no man of your offspring throughout the generations who has a defect shall be qualified to offer the food of his God to where we are today saying people with with different ways of communicating, with differences in their body, are capable of offering spiritual leadership. I think that we've maybe, we're, you know, it looks different than what the, the words on the page might have reflected in Leviticus. And I think we're, we're honoring the same tradition that was reflected in that text by saying, like, our communities are rising to the occasion to be able to welcome these um, leaders in, in many different ways. Um, Okay, so I'll now take a couple other thoughts before we transition back to to Mari. Uh, uh, Tybel. Um, it's a question, actually, as I was listening. The, the reference to hands dyed blue, mm -hmm. I don't know enough to know about dying in general, but do you think it might have been a coded reference to Tehelet as, as in... Even if your hands are dyed blue because you were doing something involved with a sacred ritual gar garment, it's still distracting, you know, as opposed to dyed red or dyed brown. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, my understanding um, from when I studied it was that it, it was really meant to be um, just, you know, a, a, a more common profession would have been somebody who just was dyed fabric and many of these rabbis weren't necessarily living in the land of israel so i believe that the tehillet snail is only found in israel um it's an interesting question but i think it's a more um what would have been more common which was dying in in any sort um interesting to think about uh marshall well i i see the phrase here but if he is a familiar figure in his town mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure exactly what the word familiar figure means, but I did have a chance to look up the word dash, mm -hmm. which we know about you should not, uh, with a, an animal who's uh, with a, on a threshing floor is trampling things. Mm -hmm. But I saw a definition of one who's very involved in something. So if someone's very involved in something, you shouldn't automatically exclude him 
from uh, doing certain things because you find some kind of a, a moom in him. Right. Right. Um, and again, like that, that if somebody is very involved, we could hear some of that as like, it's on somebody to make themselves known in the community. And I think that has an important role. I also think that the communities have to do, have a big role in making themselves accessible enough that we can hear the voices and see the people in whatever ways they are communicating um, who have, you know, various kinds of differences. Um, Larry. Thank you. Um, I don't know that we should make too much of the, um, uh, <clears throat> the prohibition. I, I rather think that it, it, it really simply had to do with the prejudice against people who appeared differently or appeared different and you wouldn't want to have them because you thought that they were in some way flawed at the time. Mm-hmm. But I'll make a sociological, not a text uh, a comment, mm-hmm. that I think we have come over time a long way in basically rejecting this approach. I don't know exactly how um, the rabbis and commentators have done it, except you point to uh, uh, one of the chuvot um, uh, from the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards to say, as, as Marshall was quoting, uh, that we shouldn't be judging people based upon their external appearance. And we should um, judge them for who they are. And I would like to think that we do that in choosing our leaders, whether they be religious leaders, political leaders, or anybody else. We're not always successful at that. But in fact, I think it's a rejection of the shot of the text here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I agree, and thank you for raising that. All right, so let's. Um, oh, okay. Last, last burning, burning comment, Brant, go for it. I, I just wanted to say that I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that none of these disabilities in Leviticus imply mental disability. And then the sec, I mean, clearly, you know, uh, people that have like depression and things like that are not included in this prohibited list, which is interesting. I mean, it's only physical, mm-hmm. seeable sort of defect. The other thing is. Rashi's comment is fascinating because as we advance in medical science, most of the physical, as well as some of the mental, we can now cure. You know, so that, we have prosthetics. We, we might be able to cure the blind before too long. I, I'm just saying is, is that the reality is that Rashi leaves that door wide open for right. modernity, which, which can basically fix a lot, 90% of defects as you might term them in the original Leviticus but you know clearly the rabbis weren't thinking in terms of mental illness which is interesting no and again I think a lot of that has to do with the understanding of the sacrificial system and the the emphasis on physical perfection there you have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.